meditation, 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 depending on the quality of my mind. You know, there's good days and bad days. I mean, feel like the waterfall of thoughts. Every now and then, a nice calm. Can't think of anything. This is meditation in the city. The Shambhala New York podcast. Thank you for listening to the Meditation in the City podcast, a podcast where we explore topics on Buddhist meditation and maintaining a meditation practice amidst living in a busy world. My name is Francesca, and I'm your host. The title of this episode is Fearless Listening. This talk was recorded in 2015. In this episode, we discuss how we listen. The truth is, we are listening all the time. But meditation leads to fearless listening, giving us deeper insight into our world. Today we are joined by Laura Sims. Laura is an award-winning performer, writer, and educator, advocating storytelling as compassionate action for personal and community transformation. She performs worldwide, combining ancient myth and true life story for adult and family audiences. She's a member of the Therapeutic Arts Alliance of Manhattan and a senior teacher of Shambhala Buddhist Meditation. The Meditation in the City podcast is hosted by the Shambhala Meditation Center of New York. If you enjoy this episode, visit our website at shambhalanyc.org to join us for our upcoming virtual and in-person meditation classes available for meditators of all levels. Here's Laura to take away the discussion. I am so engaged with language and hearing and listening and speaking in my work. And I thought, what is it about listening that really is transformed through our meditation practice? So I hope it is as interesting to you and helpful as it is to me. I was thinking that actually we live constantly in a world of listening. Listening is um, like a thief, sneaks in. And sometimes sneaks up and out. <laughs> that all day long we're engaged with not only the hearing but feeling the pulsing of the world we live in. And also, we're always listening to our own thoughts and opinions, our own biases and judgments. We have multiple little voices informing us of how we should react, respond, appear, think, and also about others. And so we hear through a filter of listening. And then we are exposed all day long to the news if we turn the radio on or get into a conversation about politics and what seems to be going on in the world and our different opinions about it. And we hear the traffic. And sometimes we hear the birds. But for the most part, our listening is, like everything else in our lives, somewhat habitual listening or trained listening. We learn how and what to listen for. And then we do something like meditation. And on the cushion, 
We're very involved, actually, with listening. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, we sort of cut out some of the sound surround of our lives. <laughs> and then we have the surround internal. And we're given a very, very disarmingly simple practice of when we realize that we are thinking and involved in thinking, which for the most part we are kind of like in the unmerry-go-round of our lives all day long, when we suddenly, something interrupts the propulsion and we realize that we're thinking, the instruction we have is not to investigate the content of whether that was good or bad or finally we had the most inspiring thought of our lives, which very often happens. <laughs> you understand everything finally. Um, and we're actually given the instruction that for our well-being and to progress along the path of experiencing or becoming capable of experiencing more fully the nature of our mind and the world we live in, that we should actually not relate to the content at that moment, but to actually let go of the little cartoon bullet and maybe not suppress or get rid of any feelings we have, but the whole festival of our thinking, we're just going to let it go and put our placement back on breath in and out. So it's a other kind of listening that's not dependent on thought. And in that activity, occasionally, we have a glimpse of letting be, of a tremendous sense of space that is there and is not dependent on what we were thinking. Actually, we're still there. We didn't fall off the planet. And that interruption, that pause, that tiny glimpse begins to change how we listen in the world. Because it provides us almost with a kind of ear inside the ear in which we see and feel and hear space itself. So in some ways, the meditation practice, its main function is to allow us to have an experience, an actual unquestionable experience of being. And then whoop, off we go back into our <laughs> thoughts or, you know, if there's a loud noise outside, vroom, or something is happening, we whoosh, are drawn over there sometimes to such a degree because it can remind us of something else and then there we go. Or it's so irritating or alluring that we are thoroughly engaged. This happens to you, I'm assuming. So the practice is giving us a very visceral experience of being present. And I remember once, we used to have all-day sittings on Sunday at the Shambhala Center, which was then the Dharmadhatu. <laughs> And it was on 14th Street and um, 5th Avenue. 
And I had sat all day, or some variant of that. And when I walked into the community room, I was shocked by how vivid, how light it was, and how vivid everybody was when they talked to me. Because I actually had not directly heard before. And it was a bit overwhelming, even strange, but intriguing. Because the truth is that we are listening, actually with all of our senses, all the time. But we have to learn, have to open up the innate treasure house of listening. In order to actually be aware of the world we live in and not only the content of our thoughts but even the patterns of our speaking and the patterns of how we view the world and the sound of our own voice. I wish I was much wiser because then maybe I could relate <laughs> over here more. <laughs> but sometimes I think that by not hearing in the same way that I am habitually uh, hearing, that the senses open and we pay attention to how sound works on the face and how energy moves in the world between us, which the more we practice, we become more sensitized to in another way. So the meditation practice that we're doing, it's like opening up inward to allow us to be present in our world with our faculties open and not limited by conceptions of how we think we should hear or how we think we should see or hearing and seeing through what we already know and then we have an interpretation of the world and we actually are almost like three times removed from each other, from ourselves, and from the world. Is this um, making sense? So suddenly, the world becomes more palpable. And the fearless quality is that we become really inquisitive about not only what we think we should hear or what we agree with, but the whole realm of being in the world becomes more vivid and palpable. What's actually taking place allows us to participate more fully in our lives. And we have tremendous intelligence in that listening and discernment. So I was thinking about what is a good example, and I was thinking of the beginning of King Lear. Do you all know the play, the Shakespearean play of King Lear? It's actually based on a fairy tale like many of Shakespeare's plays. And 
It is a, a story that is marked by habitual listening. Because there is a king, King Lear. And the king had three daughters. And at some point, the thought entered his mind of whether his daughters truly loved him enough or how they loved him. And he asked his daughters how much they love him. And the first two daughters, of course, said they loved him so completely. He was the father. He was the king. They would do whatever he wanted. He loved, they loved him like the world. The third daughter was more contemplative. And she thought about it. I can't remember if it's like this in the Shakespearean play, but in the fairy tale, she says, after some thinking about it, contemplating it, I love you like salt loves meat. What the king heard was this banal analogy, this ordinary, raw metaphor of salt and meat. And he was enraged that his daughter could think so little of him. He heard based on what he wanted to hear. And isn't that very often how we listen? And so she was banished, and both in Shakespeare, which is far more complicated, and um, in the fairy tale, the king eventually goes mad, like we do. <laughs> Until he comes to understand the profound depth of meat and salt. Without salt, the meat rots, lacks its full flavor. So <clears throat> salt is absorbed into the meat. <laughs> I hope that if you're a vegetarian, this doesn't disgust you. <laughs> And then the second story I'm going to tell you is much more fruitional, which is that I was um, called to the north of Seattle by a very, very close friend and teacher of mine who was a Native American elder. And she was getting very old. In fact, she was 98% blind. She could see just a little bit from the corner of her left eye. And it was somewhat shocking because she often saw things that none of us noticed. But the reason Vi called us together was that she wanted to give us assignments for the rest of our lives. <laughs> she was about 90 years old at the time. And actually, many, many winters, she had brought me to Seattle for different things. and. I always went because, you know, I thought she was getting old, and what if she died? And then I began to think, well, maybe she was going to really outlive me. <laughs> but at any rate, in this um, conversation, which went on for three or four days, she actually gave each one of the other four people, she called us all young, although we were all over 50 at the time, and she gave very, very elaborate instructions to the other people of what they should do with the language and the stories of her people and um, what she expected of them and so forth. And she didn't really pay much attention to me. So at some point on the fourth day, I thought, well, tomorrow we're going to leave. I really should ask her. And that little thought, like the King Lear thought, 
popped into my adult neurotic brain. And not only was I thinking, how come I didn't get an assignment? Because some people would think, isn't that a relief that you didn't get an assignment? <laughs> but I also was thinking everybody else had been given an Indian name, and I had never been given an Indian name. <laughs> and they had been adopted into her tribe, and I had never been adopted into the tribe. And so then, really, my mind was quite filled with dissatisfaction, which I disguised as curiosity. And so I said, why can I ask a question? She had that way of looking, you know. And I lied and said, don't think that I'm unhappy about this. <laughs> Which is such an interesting thing that we do, isn't it? <laughs> but I wondered how come, I just thought I'd ask. Oh, you gave people an Indian name and you adopted them into the tribe. And she said, you never did anything for my people. No. I heard it the way you just heard it. And so I just was, you know, every Jewish bone in my body lying underneath <laughs> my meditation practice said, Vi. Did I do something wrong? <laughs> she said, no, that's not your job. And so I said, what is my job? And she said, your job is to keep the spirit of storytelling alive. Now, I'm telling you this not because, well, stop making excuses. I'm telling you this story. And... Um, <laughs> These little voices have their way. <laughs> and um, so I said, well, what is that? And she said, come on out. So we all got up, and we went out on the porch, and it was late winter, not quite spring, and it was very, very chilly, and nothing was really growing, and it was overcast, and in the distance were the mountains of her ancestors, the Salish tribe, the Puget Salish nation, and her tribe was Lashutseed. And so I expected that she was going to tell us a story or give us a lecture. But actually, she called her cousin Paul over, who had a very large drum, and she whispered something to him, and he began playing a very, very continuous, even beat, and singing under his breath, barely audible. And then Vi put out her hand, and she started singing. Was in Lashutsi's language. So I had no idea what it meant. But there was a different kind of listening in that situation. And then, sort of slowly at first, one or two birds started appearing. But within I don't know about time, maybe it was five minutes, that 100 or 200 birds of every size sort of appeared and they were alighting on the ground. And then crow, among the Salish as opposed to the Inuit or Eskimo, much northern people who have raven as their main deity, among the Salish crow, is their main deity. A crow landed in her hand. And as she kept chanting, the crow just was there doing his crow thing. When she stopped singing, crow flew away and all the birds 
flew off. And I'm telling this story because there was a kind of listening that occurred that had nothing to do with logic or <laughs> thinking about what happened because it actually was, had nothing to do with that. And some part of me was very wakeful. And then it started happening. I was thinking, what should I, like, what can I say? I couldn't even, I couldn't find the sentence or the thought. And I was trying to have a construction event and, you know, a, an architectural thinking moment. But it, it there was, what can I ask? <laughs> so Vi just turned to me. She said, it's your turn to make the coffee. And the only other times that I had experiences like that, and these, I mean, that one sounds very magical, but it, it, I can't explain the very ordinariness of it, the open quality of my recognizing that she and the birds, what were they listening to? Did it matter? It was a kind of presence that was the aliveness of the world. And sometimes when Trungpa Rinpoche used to talk, he would give these um, sort of Vajra weekends for students, long-time students, and we would traipse up to Vermont or wherever. And he would talk, and I would be taking notes. And then when I would read my notes later, they really wouldn't make sense. Like, what happened? What was that? So I think that there's something very daring that's being offered to us in our meditation practice. And it may not, you know, you may not have a dove <laughs> fly into your hand on Broadway. Who knows? But the patience and the visceral quality of being able to, in a sense, read the world or listen to the world or be present with ourselves is actually increased. And we nurture that with our practice so that it's a visceral experience of being with ourselves and others. And sometimes it can take the very practical and very gracious, sometimes fierce aspect of letting be in a conversation with others where we don't fill in all the spaces to make sure that we get our point across or that we um, are figuring out everything so that we could be more successful, so we could repair everything in our lives and each other's lives so that we can build up a, a sense of everything is really okay in that manufacture of temporary contentness with the world that suddenly there is a letting go in which we actually are there with what's being said and what's happening. And there is an interest and no need to react. Do you follow what I'm saying? It is predicated on the strength of our being able to be with ourselves on the cushion. It is a practical and ordinary outcome of our practice that we learn to fearlessly listen. We become aware and discern between the opinion we have of something that is the way we're looking at it or interpreting it and the vividness of what might actually be taking place. 
Like what might have happened if King Lear had felt and heard the beauty and the singularity of what his youngest daughter was saying to him. Or what would it have been like if all the while when Vi was singing, I kept saying, could you explain to me what is happening here? I don't really like this. It makes me feel really uncomfortable. Or is this some kind of magic act that you're involved in? Can I learn it? I could make a fortune. Something else which we can explore and harvest in our lives that may serve us to do less harm. Because the relationship is before thought. And it is in that fearless listening where we experience the interdependence between ourselves and others, and also at the same time really experience our individuality as well. Our mind is big enough so that we actually experience both. We could hear the intellectual, meticulous content, and we can hear the sound of a voice. We could hear the pause in between. We could breathe with each other. And we have no idea of what effect that has in the world. So I I think it's a daring act to um, actually in a way stand down (laughs) from our habit of filling in the space or of developing um, a tone of voice that tries to climb over all the sound of the world or is disembodied and like a lot of news and radio announcement it's quite disembodied and then we get addicted to that And it's so poignant considering how much time we're involved on in digital reality and digital sound where actually the space between letters and the space between words can be mechanically removed in order to put more words or more music on a disc so that listening becomes addictive on the surface and the deep listening where we can hear our spirit, in a sense. We have to work hard at that. It's a remembering. And I I think that a lot of our practice, a lot of meditation practice, is that reminder. Sometimes, you know, we think the whole hour or the whole half hour. (laughs) And sometimes it just, you know, we're even thinking about whether we're thinking or whether we're thinking correctly or we, gotta, or we have our breath right or, you know, so whatever it is. And then suddenly the gong rings and, oh, yeah, I forgot about that part. <laughs> but even, even that, knowing that, it is the investigation of that, the becoming familiar with that that loosens our craving. I think I told this story once before in a Dharma talk, but I was working in a high school where there was um, 
lot of conflict was really before the whole digital event, which makes it even more radical. So I did an exercise with a group of teenagers, an exercise I learned from Jerry Grinelli, who's a great percussionist and a great Dharma teacher up in Halifax. And Grinelli used to have us close our eyes and just put focus on our ears and see what sounds we hear. So I asked the kids to do that. First of all, it was like, get to close your eyes. And then there's a lot of laughing and like, you know, <laughs> trying to get your neighbor <laughs> engaged in it. And I said, no, no, this is really hard. This is actually hard. I can understand why you're having trouble with it. This is hard. Okay. I said, so let's do it for 10 seconds. See if you could like do it for 10 seconds. But then we did it 10 seconds, 12 seconds, 14 seconds, a whole minute. That was, you know, really big. And um, we had a list of all the different things that they could hear. And they actually were liking it. Everybody, you could tell everybody, it's like a relief. Everybody was kind of liking it and interested in all the different sounds. And then when we closed our eyes again, trying to hear what other people had heard. Because like, hey, man, that's something. Yeah. But that process of relaxing and opening a sense could be the eyes, could be our hearts, could be smell or taste. And I said, now let's really try something now a little like more complicated. Do you think you can do it? Yeah. Okay. So why don't you close your eyes and see if you could here inside your body, inside your mind. <laughs> so every, most people forgot to put in on the hearing aspect their thoughts. But when somebody mentioned it, <laughs> then everybody was really aware of how much thinking was going on. So I didn't point that out as good or bad. It was just on our list and hearing heartbeat or hearing somebody said they heard their blood moving. Three, um, or they heard silence. So then I say, okay, this last thing, let's do this last thing. Like if you open up your ears in and out completely and see if you can hear what the silence is like that is always there around the sound <laughs> and inside the sound. And the room really settled. It wasn't just mental settling, but physical settling. Because you can't really listen if you're not in your body. It's a different kind of listening. So, so how is that? Like, what did it sound like? This boy raised his hand, and he said, you know, it was like hearing the sound of snow falling in the distance. It was the essence of poetic language that allows us to express what is both expressible and not expressible. And everyone had tremendous appreciation for themselves, for each other. And so then we made lists of things like that, of what the silence could sound like. And no one said it didn't sound like anything. Because there is the silence in which we cut things out or we shut down. And then there's the silence that is alive. In the advanced teachings of Tibetan Buddhism, 
there are the descriptions of mantra and the description of hearing the sound of the universe. So there are realms of listening that for most of us we haven't been introduced to. But if you ask a Bushman, Kung person, about boredom, (laughs) there's no idea of being bored because you're present. So I think that our meditation practice, somebody asked me today, why meditate? (laughs) And so I was really thinking, well, it's because, and I think it's something similar that the Karmapa in his talk, were any of you there a couple of weeks ago? It's a very, very young but very fantastic Tibetan Buddhist teacher who the Dalai Lama has chosen, along with another young teacher, to take on all of his responsibilities in the world, not politically, but socially for the whole world. (laughs) And so the Karmapa was saying something like, the whole mission of meditation is to allow us to experience fully. And it's so profound, really, to hear, to take that in of what that is, And also then to recognize that it is our practice as opposed to our ordinary activity in which we forget to be present. (laughs) And it's not that we can't do all the things that we're doing or have all the preoccupations and the relative concerns and be successful or unsuccessful or whatever it is that we think we're doing, but here we are. We have no idea of how much we could truly accomplish compassionately by being alert and by fearlessly listening first to ourselves and what's inside of us And then that naturally gives us the capacity to engage and become totally related and responsible in our world, just by the very fact of being present. That's it. I'll tell you one more amazing little story of going on Union Square subway. How many of you have gone down into the depths of Union Square subway station? Where it's very... um, The only thing that equals the noise is the smell. And then you can feel the train. (laughs) And it's coming closer and all that. And... So I was waiting for a train to go uptown, and the doors of a subway opened. And I, there weren't many people on the stop, so I sort of got onto the train, but suddenly had to sort of hop over a net filled with fish that was on the ground in the train. <laughs> and so it was a surprise. <laughs> And such a surprise that it kind of woke me up. But I looked around in a very habitual way because, you know, when something really odd like that happens, you look around for somebody to go, yeah. It's a little strange. But no one, <laughs> no one related to my... <laughs> it, well, not, they didn't relate to my experience in the way I was looking for. Because everyone was sitting just as you were sitting 
when we, before this talk, everyone was seated, and it was a kind of immense, like, I don't know, heart-open presence, so unusual on the train that I sort of like felt like my desire to get everybody to agree with my experience was an invasion. <laughs> so I just came back to myself, whoop, and I sat down. And I was sitting across from a man who was obviously a fisherman. <laughs> and he was wearing a navy blue pea coat and a, you know, sort of these, what do you call those hats like a cowl, navy blue? Yes, maybe. You know, fisherman's hat. <laughs> but his grief was so loud. His grief was so um, palpable that I also, just in a way, took my sitting position <laughs> on the subway because it was even louder than what happened next. And everyone, no matter who they were, young people with earplugs and you know in and everyone just everyone was so it cut through the distraction of the world and then which happened every couple of stations he just cried Mary What was so amazing is when my stop came, and I had this sense each time somebody got up that everyone was aware of it, and it was as if we were in a shrine room or a, a synagogue or a cathedral together. <laughs> and I got off, and when I was walking in the street, I realized that I actually felt this tenderness and joy and appreciation. And it really wasn't until I remembered this incident today, although I've sort of told this incident, you know, sometimes in storytelling because it's a great story and I tell about death, but really it was about this listening that occurred his fearless listening to what was so real and our being brought to that state of being awake. So if you have any questions, please ask them. <laughs> and um, <clears throat> thank you for staying with my um, exploration of listening. I don't really have a question as much as more of a comment because the last thing really struck me. Um, I actually just got back from uh, Newtown, Sandy Hook, Connecticut, where my uh, family is from. And the last thing that you said about being present in grief was exactly what I experienced. And so I'm now back here having learned to do that in such a deep way to bring it to people in New York and to the Shambhala Center, which I was a part of before I left. And I left very suddenly. Um, I just felt, and I think that the people that were here that knew me, and I, I was here every single week, um, were like, wow, you're le it's Tuesday and you're leaving on Sunday so suddenly? But I just felt really called to go back there. And it was a very beautiful experience. Um, and in the first your anniversary being a part of a church there and experiencing really experiencing your heart turn in your chest in a way that um, you felt like it was a privilege it was a privilege to be a part of that um, and 
that is exactly what I've experienced, what you said about being very present now. And I was walking down the street today, and I just felt like I was noticing every step and taking my time with every step and just wanting to be connected to life and in particular people because uh, the story that I heard, what I, how I heard the story about the, the chant and the, and the birds was that we all have this energy that goes out of us and I feel that meditation has readjusted my orientation to whereas I'm coming from the inside out mm. rather than constantly shifting to what's going on the outside in and she obviously was bringing this energy out and drawing life towards her. And I think we all have that ability to dynamically participate in life and dynamically participate in interactions with each other. And uh, thank you for making us aware of that more. Oh, well, thank you. And also, thank you for what you said. You're welcome. Let me think about... Um Morning songs, communal morning songs that people sing. Mm -hmm. And they can, if you listen to the words, if you like a very somber and listening, just translating the words, you think oh, I have to be very somber here. The quality of what that does is actually um, opens up communal celebration. Mm -hmm. And I do take portraits with a camera, and I, uh, at the end of that two-year period in Newtown, I was able to um, take some portraits, feeling that the people that were there were comfortable enough. And they're very powerful, and they do very much speak about um, silence. They're very dynamic. Yeah. yeah. I mean, one of the great obstacles to furthering the path of meditation is being completely somber about it. <laughs> Thank you. I am so intrigued by your mentioning of your Native American teacher, and I'm just wondering, how many teachers have you had in your life, and um, is it uh, related to you listening? that you found them, or how did you find them? It's <laughs> a great question. Well, um, I've been a student of um, Chögyam Trungpa Rinpoche since my early 20s. And so I met Trungpa Rinpoche um, through a tape. Well, actually, it was a series of things that happened where I heard about him, heard very questionable things that, like... I would never get involved with that. And then heard things that were so intriguing. So I went to the Dharmadhatu at the time, and there was a tape. And it was on a you know, a cassette, and it was kind of funky. And uh, his voice was shaky because he was drinking and laughing a lot. And, but I really loved this talk because his voice was also very genuine. And he was talking about the wisdom of confusion. And since I was so completely confused, it's really <laughs> interesting to be <clears throat> shown that my confusion could be the source of wisdom. And his um, description of our minds being like a sort of thick, mulchy, um, you know, sort of the top of a lake or pool of water, kind of foul and stuck, and that the meditation was like a stick that you put in, and it sort of churned it up so that the fresh nutrients and the little fishies at the bottom and the clear water could mix with the other. I didn't know. It, it changed my life, actually. <laughs> so maybe it was really listening to something that I couldn't exactly understand, and yet some part of me, because I think it is innate in all of us and familiar. Like somebody says, why am I here all the time? It's like so weird. And yeah. But there's some part of us that resonates with what's true. And then we complain about everything's wrong here and, you know, the whole nine yards. And it's just like really 
weird, but there's something that we keep coming back for, which is not out there, but is actually here. <laughs> and I met Vi because of my storytelling, and probably also because of my relationship to Trungpa Rinpoche, that I could um, appreciate her. And we were at a, we were on a panel, very early feminist days, a panel at the University of Washington, and I told a particular story that a lot of very um, strong feminists got up and walked out. And I was shocked because I really felt that that story was about um, feminine principle empowerment. <laughs> and Vi was sitting like this, you know, and. She was very young at the time, very, very blazing black hair. And she said, I like that story. <laughs> and then she said, I should come to her house to eat with her, which was a long meal. <laughs> but um, she was quite, you know, she was also pretty... Um, Outrageous in some ways, but I, and I had to listen. And um, you know, she wanted obedience in certain situations, and there were certain situations where, if there were other elders, I was the servant, so I would have to eat things like a lot of fry bread and <laughs> all kinds of things, <laughs> and get like thoroughly bored and think, why isn't she bored? She's so old. But um. So we can get out of here. And then, uh, but on the other hand, then there were things that were said or things that I was learning all along. She, she, her parents were both medicine people. And when she was a little girl, she said she could feel her ancestors wanting to put that, the description of it, like the images, a cloak, so she could become a healer. But she understood that that wasn't her path. And what she felt was really important at this time was that she learn and perpetuate the language because the sound of Lushutsi language is so different from ours. It has sounds that took me years I didn't hear them and also tones and clicks and it's a, it's a very different language but she said all the wisdom is in the sound of that language. And I didn't know what that meant, but I wanted to know what it meant. So um, <clears throat> there were things like that. Also, she was really fun to be with. I was trying to be frugal, and she ru ruined my life, as did Ching Brumbache. And, uh, <laughs> you know, she had me <laughs> shop for things in Paris and... And, you know, all kinds of, like, in, immensely interesting things that happened as a result of having a teacher. Then, you know, everything becomes your teacher. <laughs> Once you start to practice and you're really listening into the world, everything is your teacher. Even the most annoying situation, particularly, becomes your teacher. Because when you are not, when you have some space and you don't have to, like, grasp onto it or get out of it completely and you can be present you actually can learn sometimes to hear the tender heart of someone or to not react so you can actually discern you can not always condone an activity but you could feel some compassion and understanding it's an immense skill that we're being given. So anybody, you know, anything that we're doing in this world is in relationship. So having the skill of listening allows us to be in a relationship. I'm not talking about romance. That's going to be my next talk. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, so... This is the two, and the Sakyang Mipam Rinpoche, and there's another Tibetan teacher who I um, also love to take teachings from, because it reminds me of the 
continues my taking the teachings that I began to receive from Trungpa Rinpoche. And over the years, you can hear that it's all the same thing over and over again, but then you keep deepening this practice, deepens your ability to hear. So that, oh, that's interesting. Oh. And then the next 10 years, like, oh. Huh. <laughs> but um, now I was very fortunate to have met Vi. She was what she calls siap, nobility. <laughs> I didn't know the word for foolish person, but that was my role. <laughs> but also, she really, um, she supported me in amazing ways. Just very, you know, um, ca- the kindness of that culture, the kindness of that culture, the inclusiveness was um, really startling. Not the exclusivity, but the inclusivity. Um, I was wondering. If you find that you're having a a really tough time listening in sort of any of the ways of listening, if there are particular things that you like to tell yourself or offer yourself or particular questions you like to ask yourself that can help you get back there. When I'm aware of the fact that I'm not listening or I'm completely spaced out or shut down or uninterested, (laughs) so rarely happens to me. I love to um, pause and just reboot my sense of being there and then be present. Like when I'm annoyed or totally irritated with what somebody's saying, then like, oh, this is great. And just like take an interest in it. Because sometimes you really, sometimes you get clues. Those of you who work in any kind of mediation or in you get clues sometimes of the basic goodness of people, even in the midst of their magnificent presentation. <laughs> and um, you can respond to that and also just really connect with your own sense of aggression. Like, oh. Here I am, so busy thinking how aggressive they are. So so it, it is a journey. It's a very deeply personal and daring and wonderful journey. And it becomes more, it's like sometimes you do have to talk yourself into it. It's why the teachings are really important, because we need a conceptual framework that reminds us and that offers us some guidelines along the way. And so sometimes it comes up, a statement that you heard in a teaching or the voice of a teacher. Comes, something comes to you and then, you know, with all your force, you may not want to do it. <laughs> with all my force, I may want to be completely right and just let it go sometimes. So sometimes it, it needs like a force of, you know, you're like a windstorm of reminder, like pause. Sometimes I just pause and I'll say, I'm so sorry. I spaced out. Could you repeat it again? I'm really, I am so murky. If you could repeat it and slow down a little bit so I could hear it. So one, you're giving someone the opportunity to be there with you, 
And also I take full responsibility because it's usually me in those situations who has, you know, ditched out. <laughs> and, you know, I could look really like I'm there after all this sitting. <laughs> but I'm not. So, um, and like that's a waste of time, not being in your life. So, you come back. You know, the other thing I was thinking about listening, I just want to mention, of course, we should stop to eat and listen to each other. So, I'm <laughs> thinking that we even listen in our dreams. And how we listen in our dreams is also how we live our lives. Sometimes we don't really hear what's being said. There are these wonderful poetic jokes and messages. <laughs> so thank you very much. And um, whatever benefit there is, I hope it resonates out to everyone in the world and reduces the great suffering that is flowering. So dare to be joyful and dare to deeply listen to the world. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this episode and you'd like to help support the podcast, we invite you to leave us a rating and review, subscribe, and share this episode with your friends. Shambhala NYC also offers a variety of meditation courses for meditators of all levels. Check out our upcoming programs at shambhalanyc.org. Thanks again, and we'll see you next week.